regulated. One, two, one, two, three, four. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages and casino gambling. Now together, we're regulated. All right, we're back with a new episode on Regulated. We have our first guest. There's been a, kind of an exciting issue that's popped up in Rhode Island. But before we get to that, I wanted to say hello to my, my co-host, Christian Bax. How are you doing? What's up, Tony? I'm doing great. And as you mentioned, I'm really excited today because we're going to be doing our first interview for the Regulated Pod. Something that, you know, as we've transitioned into a different format and we're doing our weekly show, we are going to try to incorporate our contacts, people we know, people who we think are just interesting and smart, who are doing interesting, smart things out in the regulatory law world. And today, the issue that we were really interested in just happened to be one of my good friends from law school. And Tony, you want to give our listeners a little briefing on, on the subject that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, this is from September 9th, published in the Providence Journal out of Rhode Island. The headline is, The Providence License Board Chairman Proposes a 24-Hour Nightclub District. And this article is from Brian Armorwall. He's a staff writer with the journal. Uh, Follow him on Twitter. He's got some good information if you're in the region. With political momentum growing for big changes in Providence nightlife scene, the chairman of the city's liquor authority is proposing a nightclub district where clubs could operate with fewer restrictions in a concentrated area outside of the city's neighborhoods. The idea would zig where others have zagged. Instead of cracking down on clubs that are open until 2 a.m. and making them close earlier, establishments in the nightclub district pitched by Board of Licenses Chairman Dylan Conley could serve alcohol and offer entertainment 24 hours a day. In an interview, not this interview, a different interview, (laughs) Conley said that a nightclub district would alleviate problems in the neighborhoods that clubs now populate while focusing enforcement on easier to police spaces. Quote, a nightclub district is your long-term serious solution, he said. It would be an economic driver while taking nuisances out of the neighborhood. Interesting idea. I love it. I'm excited to talk to him about it. Coming up next, we're going to have an interview with Dylan Conley. We're going to go really deep into that issue and a, and a couple other interesting things that he's working on up in Rhode Island. And we'll be back with you in a moment. So we have Dylan Conley here today. Dylan and I go way back to uh, when we were in law school together. Dylan is an alum of Florida State University College of Law. He's also an undergrad alum of Boston College. And he has moved up to Rhode Island since, since spending some time in Tallahassee and is part of a very successful law practice up in Providence, Rhode Island. He's also very active in his community. He's a member of the Rhode Island Bar Association's Government Law and Labor Law Committees. He is also very involved with young professionals, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about his young professional organization as well. But he's here today because Dylan has an innovative idea. And like many innovative ideas, <laughs> those ideas can be somewhat polarizing. So before we get into that, welcome, Dylan. Welcome to Regulated. You are our first interview that, we've, that we have had. Oh, thank you. Thank you for putting me on. I'm excited. Talk, talk to me just kind of in a brief overview. 
tell me tell me about the idea that you you kind of have put forward in a memo up in Providence. Sure. So Providence is kind of having the public's attention is being focused on some of the challenges that happened with our nightlife. There was a violent incident in which someone actually was murdered. And since then, there's kind of been an additional focus on how the Board of Licenses functions. And and I'm the chairman of the Board of Licenses. But going back about two years, I've been trying to develop some solutions for what I see as chronic issues with nightlife. And while I think the natural reaction to a violent incident uh, is to try to tamp down and make sure that there's less nightlife. I actually see that as uh, more of a problem than a solution. And I think the solution is to actually increase nightlife, but to do it in a focused way with better security. So then you take these clubs and you'd incentivize them to move to an area that's their own so that they're not impacting residential areas around them. Is that right? Yeah, incentivizing is the right word. We're not going to close anyone down. We're not going to force anyone to do anything, but we can create market incentives for them to move to a specific district. We can you know, remove the time that they have to close. We can allow hookah to be sold. We can allow bottle service. There's some pretty strict rules about adult entertainment, which really impact the clothing that some of the servers can wear. We can remove some of those limits. And when you start to do all of those things, you create a market reality where nightclubs outside of that zone can't compete with nightclubs in the zone. What regulations do you have on, on the dancer clothing? What, what, what does that mean? So there's this uh, bizarre section of law where you have to deal with the percentage of the buttock that is covered. <laughs> and it's a nightmare. We constantly have to, we're, they put up these photos at public hearings of these women that aren't even in the room. And we're supposed to judge whether or not it's appropriate clothing. It's ridiculous. Wait, so this is an enforcement action? Like someone will bring in photos that they've taken and they'll visit too much yes. of this woman's butt cheek is showing? Yes. Yeah. And, and the way they try them down is all of these clubs are kind enough to post it on Instagram first. So we see it on Instagram and then the police have to go into the club to see what's happening. Okay, so what portion of the backside has to be covered? What what is what is the stipulation generally? Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. It might be like 50% or something, but it, it, it's not quite the Supreme Court standard, but you do know it when you see it. You know, it's interesting because when you read the coverage of your proposal, Proposal, your memo, there is a lot of talk about previous crime at, at nightclubs. And it seems like just from going back and reading the Providence Journal's archives, a, a lot of that stuff happens in strip club, clubs. So I kind of went down this rabbit hole mm. of Providence strip clubs. And what what is the deal? What is, what is the Cadillac Lounge? Because I see that <laughs> <laughs> constantly when I'm, when I'm doing Google searches of, of Rhode Island nightclubs. Providence strip clubs, Cadillac Lounge included, have... Uh, an affinity for being in the news. I, they actually just started to do a, a kind of creative concept where the sports betting has been legalized in Rhode Island. So they're trying to create a section of their strip club that's dedicated for sports betting. Now they don't make revenue off of it, but they basically are providing complimentary entertainment. And I think the interesting thing about that is Cadillac Lounge seeking to increase money for itself is actually increasing tax revenue, both for the state and the gambling level and for the municipality with the increased liquor sales. And the Cadillac Lounge is is run by probably my favorite bar owner's name I've ever read, which is Dick Slappy. Yes. Or Dick Shappy. It's not Slappy, it's <laughs> yes. Dick Shappy. Dick Shappy. Yeah, it's too good to be true.
climbing out of the rabbit hole for for uh, Providence's strip clubs. There's there's a whole kind of bevy of entertainment options at Providence. It's a mm-hmm. very and it's a small city, but it's mm-hmm. it's a happening town. Like there are great restaurants, great nightclub options. I mean, yeah. can you talk a little bit just kind of frame for people who have never been to Providence what what it is because it it was something that I did not expect before I lived there. Yeah, so I think if you go back in Providence's history it's always had sort of a strength with nightlife. And then more recently, because of Johnson and Wales and their culinary program in the city, uh, the, and I also think of the affordability of the real estate relative to much larger cities, we've seen this incredible growth in the restaurant, uh, scene. And I think in terms of food, province can go toe to toe with anywhere. It's amazing. And it's still, it's affordable and you can walk in and get a table and the experience is wonderful. But what has happened is over time, whether it's because of regulations or just changes in, in patron interest, the the options for nightlife have decreased in terms of clubs and really sort of intense nightlife. Uh, there's plenty of bars. There's a lot of great restaurants. But, you know, what do you want to do if you want to keep the night going? Those options are getting fewer and fewer. And those margins are getting thinner and thinner. And I think we're actually doing a disservice for the amount of people that enjoy those activities. One of our most common violations in front of the board of licenses is entertainment without a license. And that basically means that they have a DJ when they don't have permission to have a DJ. That's usually a zoning problem because they're kind of adjacent to a residential neighborhood. But what people don't see in the public that we see on the board is those establishments are packed. There are tons of people there. Another example is bottle service, which is illegal in Rhode Island. And you watch these videos of all tons of people paying hundreds of dollars each for bottles every night. And it's, it's technically, it's illegal. So you have to bring them in. You have to suspend their license because it's unfair to the clubs that are obeying those laws to allow someone to skirt along the sides. What I think is if we create a district which allowed you to just have bottle service, your margins would be much better. Can you talk a little bit more about your board and what its mission is? Sure. The, the Board of Licenses oversees every single business license, food service license, one-day festivals, everything for the city. But what gets the most public attention is how we deal with liquor licenses. We approve or deny people the right to have a liquor license in the city. There are some other thresholds involved, of course, zoning, planning, you know, building inspections, those sorts of things. But what we'll have in front of us is should they close at 1 a.m.? Should they close at 2 a.m.? Is the person applying for the license fit to hold a license? Are the bartenders going to be TIP certified? Are the security going to have floor host permits? Those sorts of questions. And is that ad hoc? Is that based on the applicant? Or is there just a general standard for for how those things work? There are general standards for overall approval and denial, but it's ad hoc in terms of we have the ability to condition the grant of the license around what we might consider to be issues. The most common issues are neighborhood issues. I always say that there's two types of people that are impacted by any club. Those that wanted to go in and those that didn't, but they find themselves there anyway. Meaning <laughs> like, you know, I live one street over, but all of a sudden there's a club in my front yard at two o'clock because there's a two o'clock closing. No one wanted to go home. And now I've got, you know, 10 people tailgating and then they're peeing on the side of my house. and you know, I didn't decide to go to the club, but the club came to me, and that's not exactly fair for our residents. So you've got you've got this 
seeming demand that you've you have mm. these parties being held that are unlicensed and they're getting hauled in front of you and they're getting fined and mm. then do you do you find that you have some restaurants that are that are permitted to be a restaurant and they're they're trying to be a hybrid of kind of shifting into nightclub mode without being a nightclub uh, you nailed it so uh, we have a Class N license, which is dedicated just for nightclubs. There are a small handful of Class Ns. What we have a lot more of are restaurants that apply for entertainment. And as the night goes on, they clear out the tables. They stop serving food. They start to have bottle service illegally. The entertainment very often is not permissible or they didn't apply for it. And they're trying to make enough money before the board of licenses and the regulatory and enforcement structures catch up with them and close them down. We see a pattern of a place starting to operate in a completely different manner. Three or four months, something bad occurs, they get closed down, and then roughly the same crowd starts to crop up in another place. We just had a bakery turn into a club. <laughs> not, not pastiche. No, not pastiche. No, no. But, I mean, it, literally, a, a bakery was struggling to make ends meet, so they turned themselves into a club at night. Providence has an amazing, you have an amazing bakery scene as well. As I said, Pestiche. Yeah. So, Pestiche, I don't know if it's internationally known, but I, I, I think it is legitimately internationally known bakery. I had a buddy who, when I was living in Boston, he was from Singapore. He had read about Pastiche Bakery, and <laughs> he and his wife loved their gigantic fruit tart the size of a large pizza. And yeah. he would literally get in his car on a Saturday with his wife and drive an hour and a half down to Providence, <laughs> pick up the fruit tart, and drive all the way back to Boston. So this is exactly what we need to do for the nightlife scene, right? Like, if we can have a fruit tart so good you'll drive down from Boston, we got to be able to have a street with a party scene so good you'll drive down from Boston. And you've got you've got Brown there too. So I mean, you have you have a you have a couple legit colleges that are in that Brown, area. Brisby, right? Rick, URI, Providence College, Johnson and Wales. It's got a good college town feel to it. Let's talk a little bit more about your creative sure. solution for, for what you floated. You floated a memo that basically said we should move, we should incentivize the, the nightclub structure in Providence to move to this one smaller area of the city that's cordoned off. It's not really a budding residential area and, and have an economy of scale for policing. Okay, yes. so, so when did you create that memo? The memo was probably done in, in the beginning of the summer. It's been circulating in one form or another with a, a lot of different people that are, are stakeholders or policymakers. And I'm just trying to have the conversation about what to do, what they thought about it. And, you know, after a lot of public vetting, and really that was even the culmination of two years of conversations since I became chairman of the Board of Licenses, there just was this moment of public interest in, in the issue that the memo kind of became public. But the, the whole thing, if you take this summer, for example, we had the tragedy where someone died in the parking lot adjacent to a club. Now, that club had not been operating well. We had been dealing with that club on a semi-regular basis for one violation or another, and it had attracted the worst type of patrons any club can attract. So we closed that club down. And the next three weeks, we have three more violent incidents at three other clubs that weren't having any issues before then. What I am seeing, what my sort of insight is, is when we close these poorly performing clubs, we disperse a poorly performing crowd. So instead of making the city more safe by closing this one club, we actually make it less safe because we disperse the threat. The, the way to flip that on its head is to 
focus all of, I mean, nightclubs aren't intense use. So to focus all these intense uses into a small area, place an additional tax on that area, give them additional rights in that area, the revenues from the additional tax are dedicated to public safety in that area. And the, the other key part is the location. And I, I always say it's, it's about isolation, not location. I don't care where it goes in the city so long as it's nowhere near a neighborhood. A lot of the, the worst things about clubs is sort of the, the ancillary impacts they have on people that, you know, they're just trying to get a good night's sleep, their kid's trying to go to school, et cetera. So you've got the public safety piece. And then, you know, another part of that has been the economic drivers. And yes. you mentioned that it was got on the East Coast, you've got New York City and you've got Boston and you've got this opportunity in Providence. So what, what is your vision if you were to create this 24-hour nightlife hub? What does that economically do for Providence? If you start to look down the road a little bit and, and you assume that there becomes a certain density of clubs where it, it's, it sort of becomes its own landmark, like a bourbon street, you start to have an economic driver where people will come from Boston or New York for the weekend. It'll start to have that reputation as a town that you, in the middle of the winter, you know, you can come down and have a great time. It's not just only a summertime vacation area. And I also think that one of the the other key components is the convention aspect. And I think this is important for state policymakers. There's always a big drive in Rhode Island to attract sort of new industries, knowledge economy, those sorts of things. And one of the best way to get people to have interest in opening a business in Rhode Island is to get them to set foot in Rhode Island. And I think conventions are drawn to areas that have good entertainment economies. They have, you know, great entertainment options so that you know, you're nine to five, you're meeting with other professionals and then Five midnight, you're getting a great meal, which you can already do in Providence. And then after you're done eating, you can really enjoy some serious nightlife like you can in Las Vegas, like you can in New Orleans, like you can in Nashville. So I, I think when you have that intensity of use and it starts to become a magnet for more and more people and it starts to become a reason to come to see Providence. And once you come to see it, you'll fall in love with everything else it has to offer. You named a couple cities with Las Vegas and New Orleans, and it's, it's two cities that have a history with that type of intensive use, right? Mm. The city's almost grown up around that intensive mm. side of use. So then how do you create a Las Vegas or New Orleans type of nightlife and culture without the history? I think you have to start somewhere. And I think taking some of the struggles we have with nightlife dispersed throughout the city and and pivoting, pivoting that into an opportunity to concentrate nightlife in one area will sort of be the start of a snowball effect. Once we kind of concentrate those nightlife uses into a single district, and we really try to enhance the sort of entertainment options you can have in that district, that again will continue to grow. And, you know, Las Vegas and New Orleans aren't a half an hour from, you know, outskirts of Boston and two and a half hours from the outskirts of New York we have this massive population that's a drive away. I mean, you could come in for the night and you could leave in the morning and just to have like that destination for these other cities, for these other major metropolitan areas, we could kind of become the Northeast coasts go to for, you know, your weekend of partying. What's the reception been like among people who are in the entertainment industry in Providence that you've talked to? The people in the entertainment industry are, are thrilled. Every single time something something negative happens in the news, their business suffers. And this is going to be the first time that something negative happened in the news. And on the back end of it, there was sort of a, an opportunity for their businesses. 
And I think they see what I see in terms of there's a vision where if they were all coming together in the same location, they could run some really seriously successful businesses. The way we're operating now, or the way the regulations force them to operate now, the margins are very thin. They're open two nights a week from basically 10 to 2 on Friday and Saturday. They've got to make all of their money in that window. And that's it. And there aren't that many clubs located right next to some other club. So you don't have this density of, let me go check out this place. Let me go check out that place. Like to go club hopping, you need an Uber driver every 15 minutes in Providence. You can't just kind of pop around all that easily. I think they see an opportunity to do what they know how to do without unnecessary restrictions. And they become unnecessary restrictions if the location is sufficiently isolated away from neighborhoods. The restrictions are designed to make things safer and to stop bothering residential areas. But if we isolate it and condense it, we'll be able to make it safer through the density and less of a nuisance from the isolation. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of this idea, because I know you and I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by this. Are you sitting at home with your wife, Jenica? Or are you just yeah. or like Ed? You guys are just sitting around talking. You're like, <laughs> you know what would be freaking awesome if we did Hamsterdam from the wire? In Providence for nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, I got to admit, I do love The Wire. Uh, the, the genesis for, for my idea was when I first came on the board and I was taking a look at all the different regulations and seeing all these different places that we were closing, they were problems because of their impact on the neighborhood. They weren't problems because of the impact on their patrons. Right. So, so it's a night, It's like a nightclub that could have fit into many other cities, but just because of where they are located, that was the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, entertainment without a license is a problem when you're next to a 24-unit apartment building. Right. But when you're next to an abandoned warehouse, no one would care. No one lives there. You're not bothering anyone. So we kept closing all of these businesses, not because what they were doing was wrong, but because of where they were doing it was wrong. And the other thing that the violent incidents, they bother me the most. And, and we watch these video footage and it's it's tough, but there's a common thread through all of them. They happen at closing time. Everyone gets forced out of the bar at roughly the same time. People that were trying to meet up with someone else and then they're not able to or they're trying to find their car or they're drunk and they're trying to pay their tab or they're trying to get their last drink and they'll pile out into a parking lot and tempers flare and bad things happen. And the common denominator is always closing time. So if you remove closing time, you remove that common denominator. But you don't want to remove closing time of a club in the middle of a neighborhood. Right. You don't want people streaming out of a club occasionally from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. You got to get it out of the neighborhoods and you got to get rid of the closing time. You'll stop bothering the neighbors and you'll make it a lot safer. I actually was just told something very interesting. A, a, a friend reached out and he said that it's been a bit of a historic practice at gay clubs to allow their patrons to stay in past closing time. They're not allowed to drink anymore, but there was just the safety concern that perhaps letting a gay club empty out at the same time as all of the other clubs, they might run into an issue with people that aren't tolerant or something like that. And just to kind of give their patrons an extra sense of safety, they could stay in the club a little longer, they could sober up a little bit, they could wait for the crowds outside to dissipate. And if you think about that, keeping a club open later isn't necessarily about partying more and more. It's actually in large part about slowing the night down on your own pace and exiting safely. Mm -hmm. So you cut off alcohol and then you just serve food or what, what would you do during that 
that extended period while everybody's in the building together. Sure. The, the soft closing time, there's a pilot program in place now. And, and so to use that as sort of an example, they stop serving alcohol at a certain point in time. A little bit after that, the, the music changes in intensity. The lights start to come on a little bit. Then slightly after that, the music goes off. The light comes on a bit more and people can kind of exit a bit more slowly. But what you have right now is at 2 a.m., hard stop. Everyone needs to finish their drink pay their check, get out the door. And it just doesn't work. Going back to the kind of the genesis of this idea. So you've you've been thinking about this. You've been talking to people about it. Who's the first person that you formally brought this idea to? I, I definitely bounced it off of some of the people that I work with on licensing. The licensing board has several members. It has an attorney. There's a licensing director for the city. There's a, a member of the mayor's administration, which tracks the licensing board. And we talk about policy solutions all the time. We've implemented a, a, a chunk of them. But these this level of policy solution isn't something the board can do. We actually need state laws to change and we need a city ordinances to change. So I think the big pivot was this summer when instead of just talking about it in circles of nightclub owners and board of licenses staff and support staff, I began talking about it directly with the officials that would have to change the laws that you know are kind of above and beyond our capacity. I've been submitting memos that we have to submit an annual memo every year to the Providence City Council. And one of the questions that we have to address is possible policy changes. And the soft closings was always an idea. And more and more, I thought a nightclub district to pull things out of the neighborhoods was the serious long-term solution. How's that been received at the, at the state level? At the state level, I think they're still just listening. The General Assembly isn't in session right now, so there's there's nothing really kind of on the immediate horizon there. But I have bumped into a few senators and a few representatives, and, and they're really intrigued by the idea. I think they're especially intrigued by the idea that it could be an economic driver at no cost to taxpayers. In Rhode Island, we spend a lot of money on economic development, and it would be nice to have an economic development concept that didn't cost money. On, on the city level, I, I think the primary concern of each member of the council is to make sure that their ward, their constituents are better off as a result of any policy. When they look at this plan of expanding nightlife, they are very cautious, and I think rightfully so, because they want to ensure that expanded nightlife doesn't mean more problems for their neighborhoods. It means fewer. And I'm convinced that if you put expanded nightlife in an isolated area, every single resident in the city wins out. And this is a big picture idea. And so when the newspapers that I've read have reported on what you're doing, they reach out to some of the leadership in those communities. And it seems like there is a fair amount of nimbyism for some of the areas that are targeted for this potential nightclub district. Yeah. You know, if I represented a particular neighborhood, I'd be very concerned about it being, you know, in my neighborhood. But it's about the isolation, not the location. The the spot that I proposed and some other locations have been proposed since then by some other people. It's it's really because it's in between a heavy industrial waterfront use uh, and Route 95. So you have a major highway. It's flanked by two sets of oil tanks, oil oil tank fields. So the only way to get to residents are through these two underpasses underneath 95. And uh, there are some residents kind of on the other end of 95, but actually there's also one more street down. And 
I, I wonder, now we don't know because we haven't had the chance to go through a public safety expert vetting yet, is after a certain time of night, you just close down those underpasses. So all of the traffic is directed directly onto the highway and just residents never have to deal with the issues. From an urban planning perspective, it sounds really similar to what we do in the South with college football games. Yes. So for in Tallahassee, for an example, we reverse the direction of some of our roads so that we can clear out tens of thousands of people at the same time without creating a huge impact on the city. See, every Southerner in the country knows exactly what you're talking about. I got to figure out how to translate that into New England. <laughs> we don't we don't have, you know, that scale of mass exodus from football games, but uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you do see that for major events that they plan for different changes, different traffic patterns, and they train, like, move people into a certain direction because it doesn't put flows through neighborhoods, and that's absolutely what we could do. And, you know, you also have another tool in your toolkit, which northern cities tend to do much better than southern cities, and that's public transportation. Mm. And that help what helps you avoid the situation from, like, the movie Swingers, where you have a group of guys who are all getting into one big caravan of cars. Yeah. And, you know, all driving separately to the yeah. same event. That's exactly what happens in Tallahassee. <laughs> but I feel like Rhode Island is equipped a little yeah. bit better to be able to yeah. instantly disperse all of those people at the same time. And you could definitely do that. And, you know, we have scooters and we have bikes that you can kind of rent. And I think if you just kind of focus all of that traffic into the commercial areas and away from the residences, use the the highway as sort of like a nuisance wall that protects you know the people that live in that section of providence it really would be a, a win for them as well in particular that section of providence and some of the adjoining neighborhoods suffer from what i'll call pop-up clubs what you identified as restaurants that pivot into a, a club platform somewhat frequently i mean the bakery turned club is sort of tangential to that neighborhood and, and that was sort of a, a, a recent problem that they had and but the other thing that we've seen again in that neighborhood is there were a few places that kept on having incidents or trouble and you just take their hours of operation from two to one and you change their business model by doing that and you change the crowd that goes there so what a lot of people are worried about is you create this nightclub district and you have this intense use over there, but you don't close anyone else. So how does that solve any problems? There's two things to it. I think the market will force people into the nightclub district over time because they won't, they won't be able to compete with the same exact business model. And then the other thing is any place that does operate poorly, you can just tamp down their hours. Why is that different from now? Now, when I tamp down the hours or close a club, that problem club that problem patron gets dispersed throughout the whole city. If I had a nightclub district and we close the problem club outside of that district, there's a good chance those problem patrons are going to go into the district where we have the enhanced public safety. So we're, we're sort of forcing our problems into an area that we can manage better as opposed to forcing them out across the whole city where we can't really predict where the problem's gonna come from. We kept talking at the Board of Licenses how closing these clubs is like whack-a-mole. And whack-a-mole isn't a serious strategy. That's not a solution. You're just trying to deal with symptoms as fast as you possibly can. And I'm not really one to be content dealing with symptoms. I want to just cure what the problem is. I'd like to shift gears into something else in your proposal that I thought was really interesting from an economic point of view. You have suggested that within this area, 
that you remove planning and zoning restrictions on those facilities and you only enforce building codes as a way to incentivize creative destruction and investment and creativity yes. in that area. Can you speak a little bit more about that element of your proposal? You're the first person to ask me about this. And it's the thing I might be the most proud of in terms of just like a small tweak having a big impact. What planning and zoning regulations are really designed to do is to protect the quality of life in the surrounding neighborhood. But in this context, we're talking about a totally isolated neighborhood whose only purpose is nightlife. So you can kind of just pare back all of those planning and zoning regulations because there isn't any negative externalities to be born because there isn't anyone that would suffer from them. What that allows you to do is to build and tear down and build and tear down. The nightlife scene you know, what people's tastes are, what brings people out changes very frequently. If you make it easier and easier for these clubs to remake themselves, to fit the current trend, they will keep investing. Instead of the district becoming stale, it's ever changing. And that's a reason why, you know, if you live in Boston or New York and you went a couple times a year ago, you can come back a year later and it might already be different because we're not bogging people down with unnecessary public hearings or regulations that really don't serve any purpose in such an isolated area. I know this is a political hot button issue, but it's impossible to talk about urban and regional planning and development in Rhode Island, specifically Providence, without talking a little bit about the Superman building, which is a really big, beautiful building in Providence, but it's vacant. And it seems like within the city, there's some reticence to do big urban and regional planning and infrastructure changes as long as you, you have this huge edifice that's in the middle of the city and it's very noticeably empty. Can you talk a little bit about the Superman building and, and give our listeners just a little context about that structure? The Superman building in Rhode Island is an absolutely beautiful Art Deco skyscraper right in the heart of the city, next to City Hall and Kennedy Plaza, which is vacant and it has been vacant for a while, and that is something that deeply bothers Rhode Islanders. What, what is the actual name for the Superman building? The Industrial National Bank Building? Uh, is that Industrial right? Industrial Trust, I think. The Industrial Trust Building? Okay. So everybody colloquially calls this thing Superman Building because it literally looks like the building that Superman would jump over in a single bound. Yeah. It looks like it, it came out of a comic book. And this thing is, it's incredibly huge, but it's crazy that this thing is vacant in the middle of Rhode It's this landmark that's vacant. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Rhode Island's Heron Hall. <laughs> nice Game of Thrones reference. <laughs> yeah, so I, actually, I've been told, and you know, God only knows if this is true, but that the, the Superman building got its name actually because the one of the original artists behind Superman went to Brown and was inspired by that building. So he kind of took the architecture of that building to the Superman comic. And how, how many years has that thing been vacant in Providence? <sighs> Probably closing in on a decade. You know, if, if this zone doesn't work out, you could just move all of the nightclubs into the Superman building. You know, I'm maybe that's what I'll pitch instead. <laughs> that's a better idea. People will get behind that idea. When I was studying <laughs> over in, in Hong Kong and Singapore, they have these structures that are like four stories tall. As you it's almost like like Dante's Inferno, as you successively go to each floor, it gets more and more of an intense yeah. experience. So like that's what you get you get yeah. in the Superman building, <laughs> you just progressively 
more questionable life decisions as you get higher up in the building. Oh, that's a good business model. That would, that would work. Yeah. And then Dick, Dick Shappy at the, at the penthouse just high fives you once you've, you've elevated to, to Dick's level in the, in the Superman building. I, I can only imagine how much he would love that. So where do you think this idea is going? Where's its future? So in the immediate future, there's we got to deal with the, the short-term issues that Nightlife has right now. And the council president has convened a working group, which plans on kind of doing some more immediate action that I'm really excited about what they have to offer. And then for the nightlife district concept, I think this is something that will grow with time. You put the idea out there and it's a bit counterintuitive and it's a bit of a shock. So people need an opportunity to digest it. After they have an opportunity to digest it, you have to see whether or not the private sector is sufficiently interested because they're the ones going to be spending all the money to rehab that area. I mean, it, it's basically an industrial wasteland right now. If they're sufficiently interested, then the regulators can kind of open it all up and then it'll be time to build. So you're still looking years down the road. But I, I think if people start to seriously consider that the number one asset Providence has geographically is it's sandwiched between Boston and New York. How do you take advantage of that? It's really this weekend entertainment model. And if you have a serious nightlife district, that is something that college kids or whoever from Boston, New York, uh, millennials will hop in their car, go to Providence for a night or two, you know, have a great time, go back home, kind of, they can fall in love with the food scene. They can fall in love with the beaches. If there's a, there's a huge concert venue being built just across the water in East Providence, and that could become a symbiotic relationship, right? I mean, you could have this huge waterfront concert right on the river. People pile into a ferry that shuttles them right across the river to the nightclub district. That would be a reason to come to Providence. And if you've never been to Providence, it has these really cool waterways that run through the city. And they use these waterways to do this thing called water fire at night where the whole community comes out. And so you have this city with great food, great restaurants, good bars. It just really doesn't have a nightlife scene, but it seems like that's what you would be creating here. There, there's an incredible amount to do in Providence between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. There's not that much to do between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. If you're familiar with the Boston stereotype, Providence is a is a is a little bit more different, but slightly intense in some of those stereotypical ways. So, like when you just say we have nothing to do after ten, this is Salt Lake City where everybody is just walking out the door and going home oh, to their God families. Knows. No, that's a problem. They're, it's like putting your hand over a hose and the water just squ <laughs> squirts out in all of these irregular, unpredictable ways. Like that's what happens when you put a cap on nightlife in a city like Providence. Yes. Yes, the people will find a way to enjoy themselves, right? So it's not a matter of whether or not people are going to party in Providence. It's a matter of where and how they're going to party in Providence. I mean, it's my suggestion that for the where and how they party, it, it should be in this district and it should be often. You have a lot of your your state lawmakers all have to come to Providence, right? Providence mm -hmm. is, yes. Rhode Island's almost like a city state. It's a state, very small state built around this thriving city of Providence. Yes. And so they they live, they work there. I'm sure some of the some of the legislators will probably go out and and make use of your your nightclub district. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I there's a handful of legislators that would absolutely love it. I mean, I, I know some legislators that they have ownership interests in bars and restaurants or have historically owned nightclubs and I, I'm excited for the opportunity for them to lend their expertise to this conversation. 
people get afraid of nightlife because they don't experience it and they they don't take part in it and so they just wish it was out of sight out of mind my proposal is to keep nightlife out of sight out of mind without eliminating it right so it's out of sight but out of mind but it's there if you want it you can go find it and it seems like the natural progression of the future of this idea moves is that you you have people such as yourself who are at at the regulatory the, the mid-tier regulatory level that are talking about this but it seems like you'd need some people with actual capital who are like this idea actually interests me and we are a small coalition of people who would actually legitimately put yes. money behind this idea yes and then you you know you have lobbyists you have people who go in and you you have this discussion with legislators and and i mean this is one of those everyone likes to talk about public private partnerships but normally when they talk about that in, in Rhode Island, it's seen as public money for private interests. And that would not be the case here, right? Because the public-private partnership is decreasing regulations, not spending any additional money, and then having private parties kind of invest and build out what is sort of a more derelict area of Providence. Right. This, I, I think this is a really cool visionary idea. I had two thoughts, kind of a pop culture yeah. comparisons. The one is obviously The Wire. Because yep. the author who, or the, not the author, the reporter who wrote the, the first story I read about this Provident, in the Providence Journal compared it to Amsterdam, yep. which in The Wire, this, this guy, Bunny Coleman, he goes around, he gets all of his lieutenants to tell all of the, all of the drug dealers in a certain district in West Baltimore, go to like this block. If you go to this block, we won't arrest you. I think, so crime goes down everywhere all over, but obviously it becomes a problem in that little cluster. And this, you know, it blows up politically, but... The point of the show was it actually worked. It just the the thought fell apart because of of politics. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you bring this up. All right, so so there was a critical editorial of the concept, which basically said that the problem was that it was like Hamsterdam, and Hamsterdam was terrible on the wire, and it was this huge problem, and it Hamsterdam created all this additional violence. And my problem with that is they clearly haven't seen the wire. Right. It's not actually what happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like the Amsterdam comparison is great because because it's a district of sort of like in, in more intense uses. It's not comparable in the sense that it's not a free for all. We're actually putting more police enforcement in the area, not less. Right. It, it, I just was stunned that this editorial went out of the way to use the analogy. And then they clearly hadn't even seen the TV show. To, to use that, to use the results of that as like a derogatory criticism of the idea, it, I think completely misunderstands yeah. what the what the concept of Hamsterdam is, right? It, so it completely lost the entire point of that season. Like it just yeah. it's unbelievable. So yeah, so very much the, the and the point of that was if we think creatively about these grand social problems, and and we don't have the nimbyism and the political correctness get in the way, sometimes we can come up with interesting solutions. Now, I'll say the other thing I thought of when I heard your idea is an episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> called Charlie Goes America Over Everybody's yeah. Ass, which is where the gang, the people who own Patty's Pub, decide that they're going to make the bar into a no-holds-bar type environment. And it starts out with a bunch of really attractive women in swimsuits and Everybody's getting kind of freaky and enjoying themselves and then progressively gets more and more nightmarish until Frank Reynolds takes everybody down to the basement to play Russian roulette 
and one of the players dies at the end. The point of that metaphor, right, is that people are freaking <laughs> crazy. And like, if you put them all the crazy people together, yep. bad stuff happens. So obviously, you have a hybrid where in your situation, you would load it with police officers. So you don't have a Frank Reynolds Russian roulette situation going on. Yeah, I, I mean, it, so the, the trade off for all these clubs, right, they get all these enhanced rights, but they have to pay a tax, an additional tax. And you hope that all the enhanced rights drives the market towards them. So the additional tax is going to generate revenue, which is just going to focus on public safety in that area, on dealing with the nightlife district. And it's not that any of these uses are bad in and of themselves. Sometimes things go wrong. So if you take it away from a neighborhood that's sort of eliminating that threat, and if you put you know, a really focused, condensed public safety measures right in the same spot they're right there in case anything goes wrong we see this working all over the country i mean again bourbon street las vegas uh nashville i'm told austin's got an awesome uh music scene and sort of a really kind of dense nightlife area why not here why not directly in between boston and new york why not become the entertainment destination for everyone's weekend for boston and new york so who is who is travis escobar Travis Escobar is the, the, it's the president of Millennial RI. Okay. Part of one of the newspaper articles I was reading about this. So Travis Mm -hmm. Escobar, who's part of the, the Millennial Roll Island, which you're also a part of, said that there, that this organization or he has this proposal to create a position called the nightlife mayor, which I thought was freaking awesome. Yeah. What, what is the nightlife mayor? What is, what is that? What does he or she do? So, uh, to be honest, I'm not very familiar with the nightlife mayor concept. I, I know that's something that Travis had been working on with some folks for a while back. And then when all this public attention kind of came in on what was going on in Providence Nightlife, you know, my memo was coming out. He came out with the nightlife mayor. And it's just been like the the, the local debate, statewide debate, has been really intense. And, and a lot of people, I think, are captivated by the concept of, of the nightlife mayor. I have some friends that work for... Mayor Lorza, the the current mayor of the city of Providence, and they said that they've had a bunch of people show up at City Hall to apply for the job of mayor. It's like a really big version of the SBA chair at our FSU College of Law, which was the party planning committee leader, or basically someone who is an MC for the city and is just in charge of all nightlife everywhere (laughs) all the time. I don't know why I pictured this particular person in a black turtleneck and jeans and just a big gold chain. (laughs) So, you know, from what I do understand about the nightlife mayor is there's kind of a a big difference between the values and problems and challenges of how a city operates during the day and then how a city operates during the night. Right. So when we're experiencing it right now in Providence, some of the issues that are happening at night are impacting how people would be operating during the day or sort of the governance issues of the daytime. If you had a nightlife mayor, so you had someone to go to that dealt with all of the issues at night and kind of were, were focusing on those concerns, you insulate the normal operations of government and the normal operations of city during the day from what happens at night. So again, it's kind of that isolation concept where you just don't want these nuisances to bleed into other areas of society. How does Rhode Island not have bottle service? I have no idea. Uh, technically, you can sell like a bottle of champagne or there's also this 
Colombian beverage that's high alcohol content you can sell. It's classic banning a symptom because what I understand was a historic problem is bottle service led to over service, led to people getting over intoxicated. That issue is much more about just patrolling your patrons than it is whether or not the patron has a bottle on his table. I mean, if a patron has his bottle on the table and he's pouring himself a drink and he's pouring a drink for four other people, that's not a problem. If he's just taking a bottle onto the dance floor and chugging it, it's a problem and the guy's got to go. Have you, I've never been at a bottle service club where that happened. Every bottle service club I've ever been in, you, you have to beg them to come to your table with your bottle, with the little thing in it that keeps, keeps the pour honest, right? Right. They don't even let you hold the bottle. You get your orange juice, your Coke or whatever on your table. Now, granted, it's been like a decade since I had (laughs) bottle service at a club, but still. This is. And anybody's ever paid bottle service prices? You don't just take your bottle, which is going to cost and, you hundreds of dollars, on the onto the dance floor and just chug yeah. it. It's literally like yeah. lighting money on fire in the middle of a club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you bring up that you know you haven't been to a bottle service club in about ten years, and, and I think one of the funniest things that you know my wife and I joke about this all the time. I don't like clubs, <laughs> uh, so the guy pitching the nightlife district will probably never set foot in it. <laughs> Like, it's just, it's not for me. So, uh, but from a regulatory standpoint, I think it's the right thing for profit. Well, that's, that's the, what it, it's a Confucianism, right? It's the wise man plants nightclubs that he'll never actually attend. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I think it's a great idea. Tony thought it was a great idea. Super interesting. It just begs the question, what's, what's next? What's, what are your plans for this idea moving forward? I think the biggest part is being responsive to people's concerns. So the idea is out there, right? And people are reacting to it. And I think to be responsive to their reactions is important because the automatic reaction to expanded nightlife is, oh my God, no, you're going to cause more problems. But I think if you really seriously think about it, and if you, you know, people who have read my whole memo, I think generally agree that it will decrease our problems. But getting people through that counterintuitive reaction is important. And I think that's the phase we're at right now. Dylan, it's been a pleasure. This is definitely a fascinating issue. And I'd, I'd like to have you back if any more developments come on in, up, up in Providence on this or any other issue. But thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. So we're going to be signing off for this week. Look for another regulated pod next week. And as always, thank you for joining us. And we'll talk to you later.